0: vulnerability, at least in the SEALs and in any high-performing team, is I'm going to wear my strengths and my weaknesses on my sleeve so everybody sees it. Everybody sees exactly what I'm strong at and exactly what I'm weak at, so we know how to mesh like a zipper.
1: Welcome to the Business of Doing Business. I'm your host, Dwayne Carrigan. With 35 years in business and close to 30 ventures across 12 industries, I've seen a lot. Amid the celebrity allure of entrepreneurship, many exceptional entrepreneurs remain shadowed. Here, I team up with these hidden talents to unveil their challenges and successes. Dive in with me to unearth entrepreneurial gems, learn from our experiences, and get educated. Hey, hey, Rich, it's so great to see you, man. I was super excited all last night. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this. We haven't seen each other for all, probably a dozen years. Ladies and gentlemen, we have uh, Rich DeVinney on the, on the show today, who is ex-Navy SEAL, 20 years enlisted, uh, more than 20 years, I think, enlisted. You had like 11 deployments in Iraq and Afghanistan, and, and then a number of deployments, probably not able to mention where they were or what theater they were in the world. You ran one of the special ops teams uh, in the SEAL-
0: Business. Division, I guess, <laughs> yeah, if you will, the right.
1: SEAL business, if, as, as I would put it. And then you created this thing called Mind Gym, which I'm sure we'll talk about, which was really a a system or process that allowed soldiers to perform more optimally, I guess I'll just kind of say. And then retired in 2017, came out doing some speaker consulting, released your book in 2021 called The Attributes, uh, which we will talk about because it's incredible. And now you've, you've got this business that you started called The Attributes, Inc. Listen, I mean, beyond that, all those list of accomplishments. You're one of the nicest, greatest people I've ever met. Amazing father, amazing husband. You know, Tina and I have had the opportunity to spend time with you guys. I just loved it, and so I'm so grateful. Welcome to the podcast. I'm pretty excited about this one.
0: Well, wow, thank you, Dwayne. It's, it's great to be here. Thirteen years, to be exact, was the last time we saw each other. So it was 2010. But yeah, I mean, uh, we lost touch a little bit. But when you reached out, I was like, I was super excited to come on and talk to you and revisit and just catch up because we need to. So uh, thanks for having me.
1: When you said yes to being on the podcast, I looked over to Neil and she's not here. By the way, I'm looking at it all <laughs> but she, I was like, Rich is going to be on the podcast. This is amazing. Like, I mean, you're a baller, and and we're just starting out on the podcast. So this is really. This is a uh, doing a friend a favor, more than it is getting yourself a bunch of publicity. But but uh, who knows? And when you jumped on earlier, we literally started the podcast talk. And, and you know Heather, our producer is like, guys, listen, stop. We need to hit. the intro already? Yeah. So. Yeah. It's awesome to have you here. Uh, read the book, the attributes, super incredible. I don't know where you want to start. I'm just curious, you know, what's going on with your life right now? Where, where are you at? And I'm sure everything will just kind of unfold as we go along.
0: Well, first of all, let's give a nod to Kurt because uh, if it weren't for Kurt, we would not have met a uh, good, good buddy, Kurt Cronin, old teammate, Well, still a teammate. We just you know don't serve together anymore, uh, but I know he's doing great as well. Yeah, I mean, listen, we are—you know—we're we're doing great. With the book came out in 2021, and I know we're going to get into it, but since the book came out, I've been—you know—doing public speaking, have been able to build a consulting uh, business around uh, the book's concepts, helping businesses and teams figure out what attributes they're looking for, how to apply that to their hiring and assessment selection, kind of like I did in the SEAL teams, and helping them really kind of uh, not only define performance in a new language. I would kind of call this a new language of performance, really. Uh, but also really do much much better at hiring and selecting, and so we're getting uh, clients coming back and saying, "Hey, uh, we're hiring people, and we're getting the lowest attrition that we've ever gotten. We're getting the highest performance levels right off the bat that we've ever gotten because now they know exactly what to hire for." And it was all kind of based on this idea when I was running training, which I, you know, it, this is, you know, I, I think I was saying before we hit record. It's unique for me to be on a podcast with a friend who I met when I started this work. I mean, I had just started this work when you and I met. And so these concepts have really transcended uh, the military, which I knew they would. Uh, But it's been exciting. My wife, Kristen, she and I are running the business together. And I couldn't be happier because after 21 years of being in the Navy and us having to kind of live somewhat separate lives, now we get to build and do this all together, which is, you know, a dream come true.
1: Which is a testament to you guys because probably a lot of relationships can't make that transition. That's what
0: I hear. That's what I hear. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but we certainly yeah. can. We enjoy it. So.
1: so, you know what? I mean, as you were just saying that, I mean, what was rolling through in my mind is I'm thinking maybe we should just slide back to a little bit to the beginning. You know, we met, you were in the SEALs, met through a buddy of ours, Kirk Cronin, really hit it off. And then you kind of in 2017- so you've been out now, what, six years, You're yeah, coming yeah. up on seven years. Yeah. I'm curious if we just kind of went back. So you're in the SEALs and you're doing all this work. And then as you're working with the teams, you're starting to create, I don't want to call it an exit strategy, but the what's next strategy.
0: Kind of. Yeah. Well, so let's start there because I, I was not thinking about getting out at all. I didn't think about getting out until about a year before I started getting out. And that was deliberate. I just, I was busy doing what I was doing. But, you know, back when we met, I had just taken over the selection and assessment for one of our very specialized commands. Same command Kurt and I were at. Uh, And in this command, it was really interesting because to get there, to even apply, you have to have been a SEAL for at least five years. You have to have stellar recommendations. You have to have stellar performance reviews. You have to do a board process. There's a whole process to even get selected to actually start the nine-month selection course, which is nicknamed Green Team. And so I went through this in 05. I was at that command. And then 2010, when we met, I had taken over. They, they put me in charge of that. And one of the things they, they said to me is they said, Rich, we need to do a better job articulating why the guys who aren't making it through are not making it through. So think about this. About 50% of the guys who, who start that green team don't make it through. So 50% of these top dudes with stellar recommendations, stellar, stellar everything, are not making it through the training, and we were uh, up until that point kind of hampered with uh, with poor reasons, poor languaging as to why people. You know, you'd tell guys like, "Well, he couldn't shoot very well." I mean, you tell a guy like that, you know, a seal who's been a seal for that long, he can't shoot very well. This is a guy who's probably shot more rounds than most people in the military, and so so it was disingenuous to them. It was it did it was disingenuous to us, and the leadership was obviously starting to ask tougher questions. Say, "Hey, you guys do, got to do a better job." explain. So that job was given to me that that question. And so part of that process was was me saying to myself, okay, I have to actually explain performance in a better way. I have to look at performance differently and explain performance in a better way. And one of the things I did was I had to kind of think back to even just basic seal training. And so you know you're you're familiar with basic seal training. A lot of people are now, buds, basic underwater demolition seal training. San Diego. Yeah, I've been there actually. Yeah, you you visited San Diego, California. Six months long, ninety percent attrition rate, and so ninety percent of the guys who start don't make it through. And during BUDS, you know, it's uh, you do tons of horrendous things. You spend hundreds of hours, you know, with big heavy boats running around, big heavy boats in your head. Hundreds of hours exercising with three hundred pound telephone poles running around those things. At the time, it was two thousand ten, and I had gone through BUDS in nineteen ninety six. So by by two thousand ten, I'd already done hundreds of combat missions, and I thought back to BUDS, and I can tell you. Hundreds of combat missions, never on one did I ever carry a big heavy boat on my head or a 300-pound telephone pole, right? So so the first thing I considered was this idea that they weren't at that time training us in the skills to be Navy SEALs, right? They were putting us in these environments to tease out these qualities, these attributes, these hidden drivers that actually tell us if the person has what it takes to do the job, right? And so I started separating these two things between skills and attributes. The one other story I'll tell which you'll appreciate, because this was told to me later on, was uh, about a kid who showed up, this, I guess this happened before I went to BUDS, so early 90s, this kid showed up to BUDS and he walked in the instructor's office and says, I wanna be a Navy SEAL. And the instructors say, okay, yeah, sure, fine, but you have to do a swim test. And the kid's like, okay. And so they take him out to the pool. It's gonna be, it's a fairly easy swim test, 50 meters. So 25 meters to one end, 25 meters back the other end. Kid gets all ready to go. And he um, proceeds to jump into the pool and sink right to the bottom. And he starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one end, touches the end and walks across the bottom of the pool back to the other end. And then he comes up, and he's gasping for air, and the instructor looks at him and says, what the hell are you doing? And the kid, who's still trying to get his breath, looks at the instructor and says, I'm sorry, instructor, I don't know how to swim. And at that point, the instructor pauses and then looks at the kid and says, that's okay, we can teach you how to swim. Right? And, and the question is, why did he say that? And the reason why he said that is because this instructor knew that if that kid had the attributes, the inner qualities to show up to Navy SEAL training without even knowing how to swim, he had everything inside of him that we needed for him to be an a Navy SEAL. Teaching him the skill of swimming was going to be easy, right? And so this is where I began to make that distinction between skills and attributes and the fact that we had to start looking beyond these visible skills because that, that wasn't telling us a story. How do we start defining these attributes and looking at these attributes? And so I did that at the command and then subsequently wrote the book when I got out because it, um, it seemed like organizations and teams were having the same problem, dis- delineating or distinguishing these hidden qualities.
1: So, did you know you were going to write the book when you were in the not series? at all?
0: <laughs> I didn't even know I was going to be. I, I, was, that's a funny story. I got out in seventeen. I began. I began to to work in the leadership space. A buddy, so Simon Sinek is a friend of mine. And he, he basically, he and I were working together a little bit. He introduced me to a leadership institute that I began working at. And I, so I was doing a lot of Simon stuff and, and this leadership institute stuff, which was fine. I was exercising my discomfort zone because I didn't like, you know, I, I never was comfortable in front of people teaching, you know, talking, facilitating. This allowed me to exercise that. But ultimately, I was I was always kind of thinking about performance. Leadership was okay, but I was always kind of thinking about performance. I linked up with, you know, we talked about him before, but a good friend of mine, Andrew Huberman, you know, Huberman Lab Podcast. He and I met in, I think it was early 17, right? Right as I was retired. And he and I began to study fear and performance and kind of put together some ideas on this. He and I decided to write a book together. And we were like, hey, let's write a book together. We, we found an agent in New York. And so we talked to this agent. Now, we hadn't, what, what happened was he had just signed to do a solo book and what we realized at the time was, once you sign to do a, a solo book, you have to wait a year after publishing to do your next book. And so, so we were like, ah, that's gonna be a long time. He said, well, why don't you do a solo book? while I do a solo book. I was like, okay, I'll do that. And so, so I literally, my agent was like, uh, hey, just send me some stuff that you on high performing teams that you, you you think about. So I sent her like two pages on high performing teams, just just notes. And she gets it and she's like, well, there's like 10 books here. So just if you were to pick one thing out of this, two, out of these two pages that you think you could write a book on or write about, what would it be? I literally, there's was just one bullet, attributes versus skills. And I said, I think I could write about attributes versus skills. She's like, let's do that. And so I literally <laughs> wrote the proposal and started, because I knew I could at least talk about the difference and I could talk about different attributes. And so that was the impetus of the book. So uh, uh, Andrew Huberman was a huge uh, influence. He's in the book quite a bit, and we did our launch, and he and I are still great friends. Um, he's still working on his first book because <laughs> he started that because he started that <laughs> podcast uh, when I released the book. So um, we we joke about that. He's like, hey, "You'll probably have your second book out before I have my first one out." But yeah, no plans to do it. I mean, I loved writing, but I had no plans. It just seemed to be the right thing to do at the moment. So I'm really glad we did it.
1: If you could just share with me, and I'm I'm very curious. You're looking to transition out of the seals. And, and I mean, it's a ex- obviously obviously extremely exclusive club and you go from seals to what's the process. And because there's, and the reason why I'm asking you the question is because we have listeners out there who are either thinking about selling their businesses, they're looking about switching their businesses. They're looking at, they're in a job and they're like, I want to create a business or maybe just want to move jobs or whatever. They're looking for a transition because they're not hundred percent happy or they feel like they need to transition into something or what's next. And, you know, they're kind of, I don't want to say they're mid midway through your life, but you'd have been in your forties, I guess, before yeah, I when you decided yeah, to yeah. get out. 42, yeah, uh, Forty two, 43 or something. Yeah.
0: Forty three. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, they're in this place and it's like, my mentor always says the question at halftime is not, how do I win this game? The question is, how do I play the second half? And I'd be curious just because you're one of the smartest guys I know. And I got to say this, like you are not the typical, <laughs> nor is Kurt. Not the stereotypical, the what like, people think you know, of, Navy yeah, SEAL, yeah. yeah, what they think of, right? you extremely, extremely smart. I mean, when you said at the beginning of the podcast or before we were talking, your son's going to be studying neuroscience, it's like, <laughs> oh, that's a shocker. <laughs> uh, you know, Apple doesn't fall far from the tree there. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, what was your process in A, deciding to leave because you could have stayed, and how did you look at it? Where, where, where was The anxiety or the nervousness or the hesitation, and how'd you work through it, and and what was the compelling future, I guess, on the other side of either what you were moving to or maybe you were moving to you didn't know. I'd I'd be just curious what what that felt like for you.
0: There was definitely uncertainty. However, I will say this. So first of all, I would say uh, in terms of my Navy career, I was very pleased and fortunate and felt uh, lucky because I'd pretty much done everything I wanted to do. Yeah, there could have been a chance to be a a captain or admiral, but I I just don't think I would have made a good captain or admiral. I I just, I'm I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm designed that way. I've done almost everything, pretty much everything I wanted to do. So, so getting out felt timely. The other part of the question, the more important part is this idea that I think transition for anybody, the ease with which, or the difficulty with which we transition has a lot to do with our identity. I talked about the second book I'm writing, I'm going to have a chapter on identity because I think identity is it drives our behavior in, in in very very important ways. And I know you know this. Whatever words you put after the the two words "I am," that's the direction you go, right? And so the reason why I say that is because this Navy SEAL identity is a very powerful one, as is the business person, as is whatever the athlete, whatever whatever it is. Those who have a lot of difficulty transitioning are those who can't let go of that identity to a degree that they can say, you know what? I honor it. I respect it. I'm putting on a shelf, but I'm going to build a new one. And perhaps I also have uh, another powerful one I can fall back on. So the example is this. And you know this because we know each other well enough. I had an identity of Navy SEAL. Yes. But I also had an identity of husband and father right now. Now, my husband and father identity was always higher than the Navy SEAL identity. Now, sometimes the Navy disagreed with that. <laughs> and the Navy would say, no, no, your Navy SEAL identity. And, and I would say probably overseas, you know, sometimes you, know, you have to put it above. But, but regardless, if nothing else, they were even. When I stopped being a SEAL, that identity, whether you like it or not, people can lie to themselves all day long, but that identity goes away. You're no longer a SEAL. But I had my husband and father identity, and that was good enough for me. That was That was solid enough for me to say, you know what, I'm I have my home base and from this home base, I'm going to start building a new one. I didn't know what that new one was going to be right away. I was just exploring, experimenting, which most people in transition have to do. You know, I tell military, especially uh, when they get out, uh, that the first job you take when you get out is likely not going to be the job you stick with, right? There's a, there's a, a deprogramming <laughs> period that you have to go through. could be a year, could be a couple of years. I had to go through that as well. So that, that the the picture became a little bit more clear. But once it became clear, I knew, okay, well, author is an identity I want to explore. Entrepreneur is an identity I want to explore. And honestly, I'm still exploring those. I'm still building those out. And and I felt very healthy with my ability to do that because I I have this very solid identity that I you know of husband and father. I'm building these new identities, and I can honor this old one. So I think anybody who's thinking about transitioning, you know, it's funny, these entrepreneurs, these serial entrepreneurs, their identity is entrepreneur, it's not businessman. This is why they can build a business to, you know, to like the year or two, two years, and then they sell it and they go to the next entrepreneur business because that's their identity. So they, they stick with that, right? And so, so I think understanding that about ourselves, what identities we're carrying, what their predominance are in our lives, uh, will aid in that transition, and it certainly did for me.
1: You had mentioned, you know, when you went overseas, and there, you have this identity and there's no question when you explain that, you know, knowing you that fits hundred percent, right? It's like, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. It's about family. When you're going overseas, and this does not just apply, you know, for you, it's overseas or at the time it was overseas. Now it's probably working towards building your business. But for, you know, people listening to this podcast, it could be, you know, whether it's going to work or going to run their business or create their business or start their business or try to pull their business out of the toilet, you know, if, if, depending on the economy and, when, and, and competition and all that kind of stuff. What was the process for you when you went overseas and how you mentally compartmentalized putting that stuff aside in order to be able to execute what you had to do overseas? Because I think it relates a little bit for people to have to compartmentalize sometimes the things that they have to do.
0: Yeah, well compartmentalization is a huge one. We can veer off on that a little bit later in terms of that's the single most important attribute for anybody to make it through Navy SEAL training is compartmentalization. We can talk about that. So so it's an, it's a very important part of of having to do that. But I also think that there's other attributes that we carry that serve both identities. And so empathy is a really good example of this. As a husband and father, your empathy has to be higher, right? It just has to. If you're if you're gonna be successful, you have to have a little bit higher empathy. As a Navy SEAL, you actually have to dim down your empathy a little bit because you can't do the job if you are too empathetic. And so I always kind of t- describe the best warriors that I ever served with. We were on what I call the empathy dimmer switch, right? And we, we basically moved that dial to whatever we needed to do. The example is you go into a building with enemy there, and you have to execute or employ lethal precision on someone, right? In the next moment, you might have to be taking care of a, a wife or some kids that, you know, are now in the building as well. And so, so the best warriors that I ever served with were, the, were those who carried both and modulated the way they needed to. So it's interesting because there's you as the seal in the, in the moment, but then there's me as the officer, as the leader and one of my jobs i felt as a leader was to manage this and monitor this because if i saw if i saw elements of this uh, of guys being unable to do this in other words they were unable to to move their empathy in the proper way, that was a red flag for me, because you have to be really careful. War is horrible. It really is. It's horrible for everybody. It's horrible with the, the people fighting it, for the civilians around it, for the, the families at home. And so that type of environment will seed behavior that can sometimes be very destructive and very bad. Um, and and so as a leader, I knew I felt it was one of my jobs to monitor that with my, with my troops. So So overseas, it was about, yes, monitoring myself, but also keeping an eye on those guys who were in my span of care because I wanted to make sure that they held the seal identity I wanted to make sure that they had permission and felt free to execute lethal precision whenever they needed to but also we needed to make sure that we weren't tipping the balance when we shouldn't be and that's a really really difficult balancing act to maintain and 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 sometimes you tip over on either side and sometimes you don't you, you don't you don't it's not perfect the whole way but it certainly is part of the job
1: yeah, you never get it right, I'm sure. How do you coach that? Like, how do you have, from a coaching conversation perspective, and you see somebody who's, how you put it, and I think it's a great analogy, when I read it in the book, uh, I was like, you're talking about dimmer switches, and I'm like, yeah, there's a long time ago, I just had an on-off yeah. switch. <laughs> <That's> right. <Yeah. laughs> so, like, there was no dimmer in a lot of areas of my life. I guess, instinctually, I've kind of learned through, you know, mistake. I'm curious, when you're coaching, like, a real, a real high performer. And you've got to like reel him in because I mean that's an issue. And I mean, it's you see it, you know, a perfect example of that would be in like a, a really high-end sales guy. You know, he's a high performer and you know he's doing some things wrong, whatever it might be culturally, whatever, like tactically, all that kind of stuff. And you gotta reel him in. What did that coaching conversation look like for you? What would be some of the tools that you would use or, or, or the conversation? How, how do you lead it? How do you engage in it?
0: For me, it's not, it's not super sophisticated. When I do kind of one-on-one coaching, which I don't do very often, it's, I keep it very simple. I keep it very attributes based. And so the idea for me is let's figure out for said human, what their unique attribute list looks like and see where they fall on these attributes and then figure out, okay, based on where you fall, you're high on some, low on others, medium on other, on, on the rest. How does that serve you in the current niche you're in. Because what I always say is just because you're low on an attribute doesn't mean you have to improve it, doesn't mean you have to work on it. I always use the stand-up comic. Stand-up comic who has too much empathy is going to be a lousy stand-up comic, right? So so you don't want to, you want to make sure you're, based on the niche you're in, I've actually talked to um, doctors and nurses too who say the same thing. They have to keep their empathy and they're more like seals in the sense that their empathy is on a dimmer, but they have to keep it a, a little bit lower because if they emotionally relate to everybody, they are going to destroy themselves mentally, right? So the idea is figure out where the attribute list stands for that human being and then ask yourself, okay, based on the ones you're low or high on, are there ones you need to either work on, bring up or 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 bring down a little bit? That's kind of the, the idea. So the salesperson could be uh could be lack of empathy you might want to bring up empathy but the question is okay is that going to affect your ability to sell, sell or not you know that's a question that the person they personally have to ask i mean you see these top performers sales sales folks or anybody the most typical combination i see in the in the ultra top performers is in fact high perseverance and low resilience and people are like no no and the most high performers disagree with me when i say that because they're like no i'm resilient but it's because they they mistake resilience for perseverance they're not the same thing perseverance is i am going to just power through if everything I got. I, that's all, I, I'm i so good, I'm just power through, power through, power through. That's perseverance, right? Resilience is, can I in fact bounce back, right? If I've gotten knocked down, can I bounce back? If I've gotten knocked up, can I bounce back? And super top performance a lot of times, and I put a lot of seals in this category, maybe I was one of them, you get so keyed in on the results. You did it, got the dopamine hit, what's the next thing, what's the next thing? You never take time to stop and recover, right? Resilience is all about recovering. Uh, that's a, a, a real common element for, for super top performers is, hey, perseverance, you might not need to dial it down, but you might need to dial up your resilience. You might need to say to yourself, OK, stop for a second, take a wrap off, take time to recover because because you will burn out eventually. And that's something you have to take a look at as well. So so for me, the coaching was has always been let's look at the attributes. Let's see how it's lining up with your specific niche and goal in life. And let's see if there's some development needed or some some tapering off needed and go from
1: there. Like from a coaching strategy, would you guys, would you coach after every, like once a month, once a week, every time you guys were out in the field?
0: So as a SEAL, there's not a lot of coaching <laughs> because, um, and again, you have to think, I mean, I remember when he, when I started this work, I was already in it. So I was, so A, I was already doing it. B, my my knowledge of it was less, much less sophisticated, but you know, one of the advantages of the SEAL team is that there is no need to motivate. There's no need, I mean, you, your your biggest job is making space for guys to actually do what they need to do, as an officer at least. It's to it's it's give them the opportunity to make the space, clear the road so they can do what they do. And then in some cases reel them in a little bit <laughs> you know, because, because they are gonna go, right? And so I had an advantage that way. Those two jobs present challenges as well. But from a coaching standpoint, I'd ever needed the, our coaching was so, uh 360 and instantaneous right we were just always always giving each other feedback on everything the routine was that it was instant that was a habit that was formed just through well a through buds because it's just the you know that's the environment and b i think because of the environment you're in a world where the environment itself if you're not checking yourself and and giving yourself feedback on the environment, the environment will kill you. I was going to say that the ocean is a perfect example, and the seals are obviously from the ocean, right? You can be the best swimmer, the best surfer on the planet. If you turn your back on the ocean, it will kill you. And same thing with, you know, jumping out of an airplane at 22,000 feet, or same thing in the combat when, when people are firing guns. You know, I used to tell my guys, I mean, the, the 10-year-old Somali kid with an AK-47 has just as much of a chance of killing a 35, 40-year-old experienced Navy SEAL with combat experience because of one lucky shot, right? So so when the when you're in an environment that is so humbling that it, it really requires instantaneous feedback, it becomes a thing. And so I think the coaching of the teams was just a constant feedback loop for everybody. Even as an officer, I was, if I screwed up, I would hear about it. I'd know it right away. Most of the time, I'd know it myself. I wouldn't have to be told. But, but if I didn't know it, I'd be told right away. And everybody else would tell. And it just was a, a feedback loop. That was an advantage we had in that team. And I think it's a it's an environment you can seed into many high-performing teams. You just have to make sure that there's trust involved and make sure everybody's humble enough to understand that, hey, they are all subject to the same uh, feedback. So in other words, if you have arrogance in there, it's, it's gonna break the system or hurt the system. So everybody has to come in with this kind of learner's mind, this vulnerability uh, to say, hey, I got something to learn and I got something to give and go from there.
1: What would your advice be there is a bit of a difference. <laughs> there's a bit of a difference <laughs> between the Navy SEALs and what you get out on the street in business. I mean, there's you know fragile emotions. There's people in a you know in a state where there's not as much compartmentalization because they've got things happening at home. You know, issues that they're bringing into not necessarily bringing into work, but they're still in the back of their mind. And so there's some level of fragility. And I mean, we just released a podcast you know, with an old business partner of mine who talks a lot about youth and the fragility of youth nowadays and, you know, wherever you land on that. And, you know, I've mixed emotions. What advice would you give someone, you know, in business who says, okay, yeah, that's great for the Navy SEALs because you're working with a whole bunch of high performers, but how do I handle this kind of feedback loop? I love the 360 thing. Like I think that's a, to me, it's critical and we try to do it as much as we can. I will say, I think we struggle with having, you know, the next layer of managers or leaders down to start adopting that and learning it. And it's a, that's a training issue, obviously. But what advice would you give where you, you have that fragile emotion that you also have to manage? I'd be curious what your take is based on your experience outside of the seals, because you've been, do, you've got, you know, a tremendous amount of experience. I mean, you coach coached several thousands of people.
0: The starting point is to define teams, okay? And the definition of a team is simply this, any group of two or more people working together towards a common goal or objective all right that's that's a team so yes a team is a seal team an athletic team a business team but a a team is a great marriage a team is a group of friends on a trip a team is a group of people at church working on a project right we are all on multiple teams in our lives in in multiple domains and so that's the first thing that we recognize any group of two or more people that's a team so the second thing is the distinguishing factor between a team and a high performing team okay the distinguishing factor is any group of two or more people working together towards a common goal or objective that performs not only when things are going great, but also when things aren't going great. That is the distinguishing factor between a regular team and a high-performing team. To create a high-performing team requires a specific task organization model. And I talk about this in the book, so this will be familiar, but let me, get, let me give it to your audience, okay? To tell the quick story, I'd been in front of a group of executives and they had asked me, they said, Rich, this is shortly after I retired. Hey, can you, can you draw for us the task organization chart? Or what does that look like for a a high performing team? Is it a pyramid? What does that look like? And so so I had some models in mind, but none of them fit, right? So I had the pyramid, obviously. That's the hierarchical pyramid. Leader sits on top. Word goes down to the minions and the minions. have to go back up, right? That's obviously not a high performing team. Very bureaucratic, very military in some cases, but way too slow. I had the flat model. Okay, the flat model was kind of a mild rebellion to the pyramid, right? We're going to flatten this thing. No one outranks anybody. We're all in this together. Everything's groovy. Everything's cool. Problem with the flat model is that, A, it's sometimes difficult to actually figure out who's in charge, and B, something can happen on the right side of that line that's not seen or heard by the left. In other words, information gets siloed pretty quickly in a flat model. So that was out. Finally, I had the Robert Greenleaf servant leadership model, which is the upside down pyramid. He flipped that pyramid upside down, put the leader on the bottom said I, the leader is in service to the people in his or her span of care. Honestly, philosophically, that's probably the most beautiful one if I were to recommend one of the three, but it's still not how a high-performing team operates because a high-performing team burden is distributed. It's not on all in one person, right? So, so really largely in frustration, I drew a blob on the chart. I drew a, like a, what looked like an amoeba. And I said to the group, I said, where do you think the leader sits in this blob? And I got answers like, you know, top, bottom, front, back, side, whatever. And I said, all of you are correct, okay? In this blob, the leader is wherever the leader needs to be in the moment. And this is a concept I call dynamic subordination, okay? Dynamic subordination implies that a team understands that challenges, issues, and problems can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who's closest to that problem immediately steps up, and the most capable immediately steps up and takes lead, and everybody follows, right? It's a constant swap because the environment will change again, and then it happens again, right? So I also call it alpha hopping. The alpha position just hops to where it needs to go every true high-performing team does this. This is how it works. And and honestly, this is in the SEALs. I was an officer in the SEAL teams, which meant I was in charge of every single mission I was on. I did hundreds of them. Didn't mean I was always being supported. In fact, most of the time I was supporting other people. I was supporting my snipers, my breachers, my my um, assaulters, whatever that is. Sometimes the environment would shift and they would support me, right? But every team does this. And even the best marriages do this, right? And like my and I know you, you and Sunil probably have these stories too, but Kristen and I, You know, Kristen, from an attribute perspective, for example, I am very patient. I'm high on patience. Okay, Kristen is very low on patience. In other words, she's high on impatience. Okay, that's worked beautifully for us in the last 23 years of marriage, because when patience has been required, I step up and take lead. When impatience is required, she steps up and take lead. Right. So so dynamic subordination implies that this is constantly happening. The reason why I set that table is because to do what we're talking about, this constant feedback loop, to dynamically subordinate, you have to have this constant feedback loop. So so even in businesses, what i found is as soon as I tell businesses that this is how you can be as a team, you can actually dynamically subordinate. They get very excited about how to do it. And part of the, the requirement for how to do it is to know your teammates and be what I call vulnerable. But vulnerability is not what people think it is. It's not the stigma of just showing your weaknesses and, and, and being on bended knee vulnerability, at least in the SEALs and in any high-performing team, is I'm going to wear my strengths and my weaknesses on my sleeve so everybody sees it. Everybody sees exactly what I'm strong at and exactly what I'm weak at. So we know how to mesh like a zipper, all right? That's, That's what that is. You start talking about this to teams in any organization, like, okay, this is what we want, how do we do that? we start being vulnerable with each other. We start understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses. We start understanding each other's attributes and you start to get this real desire and motivation for people to say, okay, I'm ready to put it out there. I'm ready to be this way because this is what I want. This is how I want the team to behave. So that's what I found with business teams. It's not much different than SEAL teams. Certainly the job's different, but dynamic subordination can occur in any team. You just have to understand the vulnerability and the humility and the 360 feedback loop. Arrogance will destroy it. So any arrogance you have to vet out and and get out because, because arrogance is not going to work in the dynamically subordinating team. So if you have it, get rid of it. If you're able to, you will have a high performing team at the highest levels.
1: It's a great example. And and I think in the book, you actually use CQC as the example on that. Yeah, yeah. that's where I really
0: figured out. Yeah.
1: So as you were talking about that, I was like, and I'm glad you brought up the arrogance piece at the end, because the question that was kind of like pulsating inside me, right, was... Okay, so what are the what are the things that roadblock people in business here to not create those kinds of teams and like like arrogance is a good one. It's not the one that popped into my head. I kind of siloing was one that popped into my head. Trust would be another one. Like if you don't have trust, how can you? And then the other one I see a lot, you know, even in my own organization, I see the need for certainty. Yeah. And not necessarily the need to be right, but just the need for, you know, to have that certainty. And, and I guess maybe that is trust as I'm talking out loud. I don't know. I'd be curious what you think are the, are the top ones that, you know, as listeners are kind of taking this in, cause this is really valuable information. I think if you own a business, like this shit is, this is it.
0: Like I told you that my second book, the one I'm writing now is called Masters of Uncertainty. The reason why I called that, I'm titling it that is because that's how I define the Navy SEALs. And I always did, even when I was back in the training uh, department i said hey it's not about the skydiving it's not about the shooting it's not about the scuba diving it's about the fact that we are individuals and teams that can drop into deeply complex environments and start to perform right we are masters of uncertainty and so so i believe that the, the highest performing teams don't in fact need certainty because they have the other things so what do you need well, you definitely need trust okay you have to have that trust because because that trust will form the ability to be vulnerable but part of trust is being vulnerable with your strengths and your weaknesses your attributes your skills being open to all of it that's part of that building of trust caring compassion character all that stuff is part of trust and that's a whole different thing we can go on to because there's there's depth there as well trust is absolutely uh, paramount and the killer bar none the killer is arrogance okay and so i talk about this difference and we have to be very careful as as teammates and team leaders in vetting out the difference between confidence and arrogance, okay? Um, Because there's a thin line, all right? There really is. Confidence is, I know I can do this. Arrogance is, I'm better than you. You know, Confidence is quiet and internally expressed. Arrogance is loud and externally expressed. One of the things I recognize about arrogance, and I actually had to learn this because arrogance was always a trigger for me. Uh, I, I mean, I literally like would boil over. As soon as I saw it, I'd boil over. I mean, I hated it. Uh, luckily, I didn't see it a lot in the team. So that's probably became why I became a Navy SEAL in the first place because it always it always triggered me, even in high school. I was, in fact, uh, having lunch with a, a good friend of mine, super top performer. This guy was a, ch- a world chess champion, world Tai Chi champion, fascinating guy to talk to. And we were just talking and he was, he was, we were asking each other about our triggers. And I said, he's like, what's your trigger? And I said, arrogance. And he said, you know, that's interesting. As soon as I see, the moment I see arrogance, the first thing I think is insecurity and as soon as he said that it clicked for me and so what i recognized was that arrogance is insecurity of some sort there's a there's there's a reason why that person is presenting externally the way they are and so so as team leaders as team members what i will say is if you see arrogance in teams in your team first approach with empathy because that's what i started to do right and say can i can i maybe get into and feel why this person might be feeling insecure and can i maybe help buttress the things that need to be brushed so that insecurity can go away and that arrogance in effect will go away. And sometimes that does work. If you do it, if you approach with empathy first, if you do all of that and it's not working, you must get rid of that person. Okay. Because arrogance will kill a team, bar none. And so, uh, so approach with empathy first. If you approach with empathy, do everything you need to do, and it's still there. It's time to offer that person up to the competition because, uh, because it will kill. It is a team killer. You cannot have, Arrogance in a dynamically subordinating environment to have it effectively work, but like I learned, approach with empathy first.
1: Yeah, that's really good advice. I mean, I used to, I would say, like you were saying that. I'm like, you know, it's a bit of a boiling point for me too, or was, you know, I learned, you know, through my experiences the last you know 15 years or whatever is, you know, meet them where they're where where they are, and really somebody who's arrogant is typically, like you said, insecure, and so they need to be their needs met at that level. And if, if you can jack them up, but you know, I would say that in the past, uh, when I was younger, I'd be guilty of like, oh really? Yeah, you're gonna be like that? Watch this fucking <laughs> <That's> trick, <right>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just come over which, the top on it. Which itself. is a good
0: point, by the way, because arrogance, like we can all be guilty of it. And we have to be careful because arrogance is what I call, it. it's like it's like a vampire staring in the mirror. You cannot see it in yourself. It's it's almost impossible to see it in yourself. So So the antidote to this is to surround ourselves with trusted teammates people who love and care for you uh, in a way that keep, keep you humble so that if Richard Dwayne is getting out over their skis one day, then Kristen or Tennille says, oh, hey, bring it back there, pal. You know, you know, you're, you're getting out of your skis. That's how we mitigate our own arrogance because it does happen. And when it does happen, we have to be very careful because we can't. It's hard for us to see. So we have to surround ourselves with people who keep us grounded, who keep us humble, who keep us in uh, in, in check.
1: Yeah, it's the one thing I always say to the- people is like, my wife civilized me in ways that I never thought I could be. I've said this on the podcast a few times, but I have one saying that's written on my desk in, a, in red ink on a cue card that says that which you resist most in others is what you have yet to accept in yourself. And so when I heard that, that was really what kind of started making me realize like, well, wait a second, I'm just looking at myself in the mirror here and I need to start to accept where I'm at. And so it was, uh, it was a good good teacher. So, okay. (laughs) We've gone, like you, you come out of the seal, thank you for all this, because I think it's super valuable. This is really valuable. I think we should get into the book. Well, unless you want to talk about, you did some work with Simon Sinek and was it Chapman and Company?
0: Chapman and Company. Yeah. 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 I mean, great. I mean, real quick there. I mean, Simon's, Simon's a great friend. He continues to be a friend we're, we're in fact, we're working on a whole trust course right now, a digital trust course. We, we just created some brand new trust material. So, um, we're going to get that recorded here, uh, in January, uh, and get that out. So that's fun. He's, he's, he continues to be a dear friend and helpful. Uh, the Chapman and Co. Leadership Institute, they're all great friends as well. I don't do work with them. anymore Anymore, uh, just because they're it, they're 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 doing their own thing and I'm doing my own thing, my time with them was so valuable because they allowed me to really stretch my wings and cut my teeth talking and and being in front of people and facilitating. I learned how to give keynote speeches. I learned how to facilitate groups and teach and and be in front of people to do this stuff. I would never have learned elsewhere and I couldn't do what I'm doing had I not learned that stuff. They continue to thrive. They're in fact now called the Chapman and Co. Leadership Institute. It used to be the Barry Waymuller Leadership Institute. So they're great. But then the book, yeah, I mean, listen, we can get into the attributes to whatever degree we want to. I think the the quick tagline that we should probably let the audience know is the difference between skills and attributes, which I don't think I've said yet. So let me just give the audience a quick quick download between the difference between skills and attributes, okay? Skills are not inherent to our nature. In other words, none of us are born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball, right? We're, we're, we're trained to do those things. We're taught to do those things. Um, skills direct our behavior and known and specific environments. So um, here's how and when to throw a ball or ride a bike or drive a car. Because skills are very visible, they're very easy to assess, measure, and test. You can see how well anybody does any one of those things, all right? You can put scores around them. You can put statistics around them. You can put them on resumes, which is why we get seduced by skills often when we're hiring or selecting or even performance evaluating. They're the easy button that everybody can see and measure. The problem with skills is they don't tell us how we're going to show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult for us to apply a known skill. So this is when we lean on our attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are inherent to our nature. Okay, all of us are born with levels of Patience, adaptability, situational awareness, okay? Now you can certainly develop this, these things over time and experience, but you can see levels of this stuff in very small children. And I, I would say anybody who has small children or has experienced small children will agree with me when I say that there are one and a half year olds who are patient and there are one and a half year olds who are impatient, okay? So there's a nature nurture element to attributes that that exists. Attributes don't direct our behavior. Attributes inform our behavior. They tell us how we're going to show up to an environment. So my son's levels of perseverance and resilience, for example, informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike, and he was falling off a dozen times doing so. Okay, uh, And then finally, because they're hard to see, they're very hard to assess, measure, and test. How do you assess someone's levels of patience or adaptability or situational awareness? They show up the most viscerally and visibly during times of stress, challenge, and uncertainty. Okay, This is the idea. If we're not thinking about attributes or including attributes in our performance picture, when we're assessing, we're missing a huge part. In fact, the most important part of the performance picture, because if high performance means I'm operating not only when things are going great, but also when things aren't going great, i.e. in uncertainty, challenge, and stress, I have to be looking at attributes. And so this is why these attributes matter. When I wrote the book, I kind of wanted to break down at least 25 of the attributes that I felt were really important for optimal performance. We now, by the way, work with 42 attributes. We have 42 attributes we work with companies on and individuals because there are more than 25, obviously. I I don't know if there are more than 42. I'm still looking for them, but I, I put a litmus test to anything that comes my way to see if it's an attribute. And so one of the litmus tests that I do just for the audience, a quick way to decide whether it's a skill or an attribute is to ask yourself a simple question. The question is, can I teach it or can it be taught? If the answer is yes, it's likely a skill. You could say, Rich, I want to learn how to shoot a pistol and and hit a bullseye. Well, I could take someone out to the range and do that within two hours. That's a skill. Or you could say, Rich, I want to learn how to be more patient. I can't teach you how to do that, right? That's an attribute. And so, So to develop an attribute takes a whole different set of things than just learning a skill. And in fact, to develop an attribute takes three criteria, three things. First thing, you have to know you need to develop it. You have to know you're low on it. second thing is you have to have a need or a motivation or desire to develop it, i.e. just because you're low on it doesn't mean you have to develop it, right? Just like we talked about empathy in the stand-up comic, right? But if, if those two things are a yes, then the third thing, probably the most important, is you have to go find, deliberately find environments that test and tease and develop that attribute for you, whatever that looks like for you. So it could be like, I'm, I'm going to I do develop my patients. I'm going to go deliberately driving traffic, or I'm going to stand in the longest line at the grocery store. Okay. I always say have kids, having kids will develop patience, Right. But whatever that is, you have to go find those environments and you can do that for any attribute. You just have to do those three things.
1: When I read that in the book, you know, kind of like for me in my mind, I just went, okay, yep. Awareness, desire, and then go and find it, take action, find it, put yourself in the situation. I said to this to you before the podcast started, it's like, I'm a book snob and in terms of, you know, my time, energy, and focus are the most valued commodities I have. And if I am going to take time and I read at the pace of a four-year-old. <laughs> That's like me. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so I, you know, I mean, I'm a horrible reader. I've, I've actually, I used to, I, not a lie. I actually used to read at a grade four level. And I took two speed reading courses and now I read at a grade six level, so it's, it's <laughs> Getting about, better. but it takes me a, it takes me a while to, to, to read, but I've read a lot of books. So I'm pretty picky, but I'm going to say, and I'm not saying this because you're a friend. I'm saying like, this is some extremely valid, I don't know if you call it science or neuroscience or just philosophies or strategies, tactics, but I'm actually going to read your book twice. How I learn is, you know, I'll read something and then I've got to go teach it. Like I'm going to actually start putting this into, you know, some of my teaching curriculum to, you know, coaching my executive teams and and I'll actually then, you know, go, okay, well, I'm going to go spend some time with the managers, which I don't typically do in, in our organizations, just too much going on, but I really see valid stuff. So guys, anybody who is listening to this podcast, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you go out and buy this book, The Attributes. Now, sorry, back to where I was. Thank you, by the way. Thank you. Do not thank me because this is truly, sincerely information that people should have. If you're a leader, you own a business, you want to own a business or you want your business to get better, which is pretty much anybody that's you know, above the age of 18 or 19 should be, and even they should be teaching this shit in school.
0: Yeah. We are, by the way, working on curriculum for the attributes. So I'll let you, so, you know, and we'll have some online here this year. We want to get it to schools and kids. That just takes a little bit more nuance in in the way we do it. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can ask Siri what four times, four times, 10 times 22 minus seven is, and I'll get an answer instantly, but this is the kind of stuff we should be teaching our kids because they need to understand how to function in the world. And, um, and this is really valid information how my brain works. I wish there was only four or six of them. (laughs) When you said 42, I was like, oh my (laughs) God. I do love how you chunked it down in in the book. There was like leadership, grit,
0: mental acuity, uh, uh, drive. Yep.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, I love how you chunk it down because I think that really helps people kind of understand it a little bit better. Certainly helped me. But the question that I had there was on the awareness and then the desire and then situational execution. How do you drive people to kind of, A, be aware that, because what I loved about in the book was, you know, you have this test and like, so on theattributes.com, I'm doing your selling, but I'm pretty passionate about, you know, helping people elevate their lives in, in a way that is significant. And I do love what you say is like, Hey, you don't have to worry about all 25 of these. And you don't necessarily have to worry if you're not good on, you know, the grid area or the mental acuity area. It's like, great, let's move and accentuate some of the things that you're really good on and let's focus on those and help direct yourself there. But you have an assessment. I was going to do the assessment and I'm like, I'm not doing this assessment because I'm going to get Tanil to do the assessment for me because she sees me, which section was it leadership that you can't assess yourself?
0: Okay. So let me, let me modify that a little bit. Let me, t- I'll tell you that, if I could, the story of the assessment. So we. So when when I was writing the book, I recognized that I wanted to put together some sort of assessment. My initial feeling was that grit, the category of grit, mental acuity, and drive, those were all attributes that uh, could accurately be self-assessed, right? So in other words, you know, grit, courage, adaptability, resilience, it's hard for someone else to judge Dwayne's level of courage, right? You know, because that's, you know, that's internal to us. So I felt like those three categories were things, were the first three categories we could throw up and design assessments on for self-assessment. So that's what we did. That's on the website right now. My thought was the leadership team ability, since you don't get to call yourself a leader and you don't get to call yourself a great teammate, that probably should be a 360 assessment for those attributes. So what we did was we uh, we created a leadership and team ability assessment tool that was a 360. And we actually put that out and we had, we had several hundred, if not a few thousand people take it, and what I found, and what I did, <laughs> you know, just because this is what we do when we're building businesses, I would I would email some of the folks who took it. And I said, Hey, if you're interested in just getting a half hour with me, I'll zoom with you and I'll take a look at your results with you. Right. And so I got to do a few zooms with people who had taken the leadership and team mobility as well as the the grit mental acuity and drive. What I found in that process was that. And the leadership and team ability, the way they were set up was that you would assess yourself on, say, empathy, adaptability, but then you'd have raters assess you, okay? So so the the result would be you get your score and you'd get the raters' score, right? And you'd see if there was difference. And my thought was, okay, there, if there's a difference, there's a, that's a discussion we want to have, right? What I realized is nine times out of 10, there was very little difference in what other people were seeing and what the person was seeing in themselves. Nine times out of 10. In fact, almost more than nine times out of 10. So... So what I what I said to myself is actually, you know what, maybe I was wrong. Maybe in fact you can in fact assess this yourself. And so what we did, and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna send you this. Like I don't want you to take the one on the on the website right now. I'm gonna send you a link. We created a 42 attribute assessment for all 42, and it's a self-assessment. And so you can take it yourself. You can see where you fall. Um, and it will give you a nice good picture of where you're high, where you're low. And, and, and here's the good news for guys like us who, you know, it's hard for us to process 42 things. Okay. There's going to be probably five or so that you're high on and five or so that you're low on the rest are going to be in the middle. And when you're in the middle on an attribute, it basically means that you're, you're pretty good. Right. In other words, if you're, if you're middle of the road adaptability, that means, well, sometimes adaptable, sometimes I'm not. You know, not a big deal. I can, I can operate, I can operate in life. It doesn't affect my behavior that much. It's really focusing on the highs and lows that start to really describe your individual behavior. If you're really high on one and really low on another, that's what starts to describe your behavior. So those are the ones you really want to look at in terms of the differences. And so, okay, what does this mean in my in my life? So, so just a quick quick one. I'm gonna send you this link so you can take it. You take it yourself and then, and then, and then see how that, and you and I can talk again. Maybe that's an excuse for us to Zoom again. And we can, you and I can talk about the results and I'll show you what that looks like. I found now through just the, the, the massive people, amount of people who've taken it is that, is that you can actually self-assess on these things and it's, and it's pretty accurate.
1: Okay, that's really cool. Yeah, guys, you have to get this book. You have to read it because you can't fully understand what <laughs> Rich is talking about until, and the way you wrote the book, the way you utilize you know some stories from the seals the way you utilize you know those stories about hank are unbelievable like i'm having
0: coffee with me. hank tomorrow by the way <laughs> i, well, see, I, I to see him, him all, tell my, all the time.
1: i got a man crush on hank <laughs> we all do <laughs> And then just, you know, the way you use the interpersonal stories in your life with your kids, like it's just, it's phenomenal. Well, thank,
0: thank you. Yeah. It was fun to do.
1: Back to my original question. story before we got sidetracked was, you know, this awareness, uh, desire piece and then situational, how do you drive? Like, so if you're a parent or if you're, uh, you know, you have an employee where you know that you've got to have this conversation, you bridge it and it's, how do you move that process along? what advice would you give based on what you've seen? You know, you've got a couple of years under your belt with this book and feedback and whatnot. I'm curious, what advice could you give to people to help coach them through those three things?
0: Yeah. The first thing I'll say is any kid, I'm very careful. I, I don't recommend too much coaching on attributes other than a kind of a promotion of of introspection. Right. So in other words, you know, this is and says Huberman talks about this as well. We our frontal lobes don't fully stop forming until we're about twenty-three years old or something. A little bit a little bit faster for females than, than males, but but you're talking about twenty-two between twenty-two and twenty-four is when our frontal lobes are fully formed. What I don't want to have happen is that someone's going through their formative years. I don't want kids to be labeling themselves as low on adaptability, high on this, whatever. It's just because we're just still, we're still in the mix. We're still figuring all this stuff out, right? So this is why, by the way, when we're looking at creating a curriculum for college all the way down to middle school, and we have to be very careful. I'm slowing it down quite a bit because I want it to be a learning an introspective process versus a labeling process. The goal for the curriculum should be build habits of introspection versus label yourself, right? And so, so we want to be very careful about that. So, and even my, I mean, I have an 18 year old and a 16 year old, and even then I mean, you know, they're still they're developing. You start to see a little bit more as they get a little older, but you know, we, we were careful on that. Now, for everybody else, What I found, um, both surprisingly and happily, is that once people start to understand this language and start to pick it up, they're actually very, very curious to start to dig into themselves. And so so there's a couple of reasons why that is. First of all, is that these attributes are not to be judged. (laughs) There is no judgment on high or low. And just like I said, just because you're high on something or low on something, it doesn't it doesn't make a difference. I always kind of describe this in the sense that we're all automobiles, okay? All human beings are automobiles. In other words, we're all made up of the same kind of component parts. We all have a steering wheel. We have a uh, an engine block. We have a chassis. We have a carburetor, okay? But some of us are Jeeps. Some of us are Ferraris. Some of us are SUVs, okay? And there's no judgment there because the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do and the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do. What we have to do is we have to lift our hood and figure out what engine we're running with, okay? And this is just ex- this is exactly what these attributes describe, okay? Everybody, and I don't think I've said this, so I wanna make sure people understand this, we all have all of these attributes. Every human being has every single one. The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each, okay? So, so I take adaptability, for example. Adaptability of 10 is high and one is low. I would say I'm about a level eight on adaptability, which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow. Okay. Someone else might be a level three on adaptability. Okay. Same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them to go with the flow, right? They're still adaptable because they're human beings, right? But but they're just, it's just more difficult. So if we were to kind of line all these attributes up on a wall, like dimmer switches, all of us would have different dimmer switch settings for our attributes. And that starts to speak to our own individual performance. And the idea is. It's not to be judged, all right? Say, okay, this is who I am, all right? And and through introspection, I can figure out who I am. Once I figure that out, I can say, okay, based on what I wanna do in my life or what I'm doing in my life, which are the ones that I might need to uptick a little bit? There might be one or two. It's never gonna be, oh my God, I'm, I'm low on 10 of these things and I have to work on all. No, it's not gonna be that way. It's gonna be like, you're gonna find maybe one, maybe two that you wanna uptick to be better in your game. Because the other ones, you know, again, I'm low on it, but I don't need to be high on it. And even the ones you're low on, if you're on a team, you might not need to work on it because you might have a teammate who's high on it, right? So now you can zipper in together, right? So so for a coaching aspect, it's, a, it's about, hey, let's introspect to figure out what our engine looks like. Let's start indexing that against how we're performing and what we're doing. And then ask ourselves some questions about, okay, if I took one or two of these ones I'm low on and I did some deliberate work on that, would it up my game and what I'm doing? The answer is most likely yes, and you just start working on those. It shouldn't ever be an insurmountable task because because to do so means you're going to be trying to do something outside of your niche. And I know that the, the common, most popular thing is we can do anything we we want, right? And I believe that, right? But I'm not going to be a professional basketball player. It's just not going to happen, right? I'm not designed for it. That's not my, that's not my, so I'm a Jeep, you know, if I talk about vehicles, I'm a Jeep, I'm not going to be a Ferrari, (laughs) okay? And I think if I tried to be a Ferrari, I'd be miserable, (laughs) you know, so, so I'm going to just be the best Jeep I can. And if I take my Jeep onto some other tracks that aren't very Jeepy, then I'll look at some attributes I might need to, to beef up. But, but it's really about understanding how we fit and our niche and executing on that.
1: That's a good point. When it comes to vehicles, I think I'm a dump truck, but um,
0: <laughs> I, I've heard it all. So that's a that's a.
1: <laughs> but you know, reflecting on you know a couple of things that you said there was, I do think like there's things like empathy, right? If you're you're not married, you don't have kids, and you're in that go-go stage of your life, and you're trying to kill your business, and you know whatever it is that you're doing, you know you're working on Wall Street or whatever you know maybe that isn't something you have to put a lot of time into it's not that phase of your life you know as you flow through phases of your life some of these attributes become probably a little bit more supportive and helpful in what you're trying to achieve and who you want to become and who or who you need to be in order to support those around you and you know i certainly think like that was the one thing as i was reading the book and and empathy i was reading empathy i'm like I mean, I just, I got that one just a couple of years ago. Right.
0: I, me too, man. I, I think, I, well, typically guys are a little bit less. It's harder for, typically for guys. And that's just on average. Kristen has helped me with my empathy, you know, since the day we met. But you know what? Let's talk about a more controversial one because that, that'd be more fun. Let's talk about narcissism. All right. Because narcissism is an attribute. And then and, and I, I have some cool examples in the book, which I won't spoil. But the idea behind narcissism is this, and, and, and I actually, I was playing with this when I was writing the book as I was trying to figure out these, these attributes that, that create the driven person, what drives us. And I kept on landing on narcissism, but I was hesitant because of what most people do is we think when we hear narcissism, we think narcissistic personality disorder. And so what I did is I got a copy of the DSM-5, which is a psychological Bible that you get and has all the psychological disorders. And and I got a copy of that. It's like 400 pages. It has a few pages on narcissistic personality disorder. So I, I went to those pages and I looked at it. And in those pages, there's like nine criteria that you read, like sentences. And the physician's supposed to read through those nine things. And if this physician can answer yes to five or more with regard to the patient, then the physician can consider the patient disordered, right? They have the disorder, Okay. Only about 6% of the population have the disorder, okay? So what I did is I started reading through these nine. And I'm happy to say that I couldn't say yes to five or more, (laughs) okay? But (laughs) when I was reading it, I was not innocent of everything I was reading. So in other words, I'd read something and say, well, sometimes I feel like this. Sometimes I feel like that, all right? So then I said to myself, okay, well, why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? Okay, I was a 22-year-old kid. Obviously, I was a patriot. I loved my country. There's no war going on. This is the mid-90s, right? But I was a patriot. But ultimately, when I was really honest with myself, I said, well, one of the biggest reasons, because I wanted to see if I could be a badass. I wanted to see if I could do something very few people could do. Then I asked my buddies, my Navy SEAL buddies, I said, why did they become Navy SEALs? And they basically told me the same thing. Yeah, I was a patriot, I did all, but I wanted to see if I could do something very few people can do, okay? So then I said, okay, well, let me look up the very basic elemental definition. I'm really big on etymology, right? Entomology is bugs, I think, etymology is words. I'm big on etymology, right? I'm big on words because I think words matter. And so I looked up the, the, the basic definition of narcissism, and the elemental basic definition is this, the desire to stand out, be recognized, be adored, be made feel special, okay? I'm gonna tell you right now, with certainty, every single human being on this planet at some point in their lives wants to stand out, be adored, be made, feel special, be recognized, every single one. It's an elemental human need to be recognized that way. So, so narcissism is part of us, okay? And it's a very elemental thing. And so what I realize is why else would someone want to be a Navy SEAL or the top salesperson or the top athlete or whatever? It's right, we have these very elemental drives to stand out, to do something special, do something, do something different, right? These are narcissistic tendencies. And so the idea is we all have it, where we stand on it, depends on what we do. And so the reason why I come back to this empathy thing, because I think it it matters, is that they did a study on, I don't know how many years ago, but they did a study on like the top 25 entrepreneurs in history, the most successful top 25 entrepreneurs in history. Every single one of them came up on high on narcissism, every single one. Now, whether or not they were disordered, that's to be, (laughs) who knows, right? But, but entrepreneurism Takes narcissism as an attribute, right? So, 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 so someone could be taking this assessment. say, ooh, I'm coming up a little bit high on narcissism. Doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, right? It it means it's a driver. Okay, you can metabolize again. You can you can metabolize in healthy ways by surrounding yourself by people who give you the truth. One of the reasons why, real quick, the disordered narcissist can always be spotted by the people they surround themselves with. Okay, because they always surround themselves with sycophants, yes men, people who bend the knee. Okay. And interesting enough about those groups is they're transient. In other words, someone can't be a sycophant forever. They get sick of it, right? So, so eventually someone will leave that group. As soon as that person leaves that group, that person immediately becomes enemy number one to that narcissist. Okay, that's how it works. Um, so you can actualize and metabolize your narcissism in very healthy ways just by monitoring and making sure you're surrounding yourself with people who keep you humble, right? People who keep you grounded, you know, and you can do it in a very effective way, just making sure that you are staying grounded, humble, and you're surrounding yourself with self-trusted people. And that's how we do it. So, so this is another attribute that when people take these things and they start to say, oh, I'm high on this or I'm low on this. Okay, don't judge it. Okay. It's actually what made you who you are. Uh, if it's if it's destructive in any way, let's talk about that and let's fix that. But but let's not go there first, you know?
1: When I read the book on narcissism, and, and I get like, you know, when you read, you know, even when you there's a visceral response when you hear the word, you know, it's the difference between when you hear the word, "butt" and ass, right. There's, there's an emotional difference there between hearing those two words. And when you hear the word, you know, whether you want to call like self-important or significant or narcissist, you know, there's a different, there's a difference there. And I, I would say like when I read the book, I, I, there's no question that I have a, there's a level of narcissism in, in my life. You know, I've seen a lot of business people in the beginning that is a driver to, to build their business. And as they get older and, you know, some of those needs get satisfied, the, there's a shift in the reason why they're continuing on and doing the things that they're doing. And, and I agree with you, you shouldn't, you should never get down or be negative about the things that, that are really kind of um, helped you get where you are today. Uh, can can we just go back Because there was a piece and i don't i'm not sure like i would love some clarity personally and maybe so therefore i always think well the audience might want some but you had talked about uh using the attributes with with kids and you know for fear of because the frontal lobe wasn't developed and you know the the fear of labeling can you just dive in a little bit about the, the the concept between the frontal lobe and and how that works, because there's, I mean, as soon as you said that, I went, well, you know, we label everything, ADHD, and you know, I mean, it's happening in schools.
0: Yeah, we do. I mean, we have several parts of our brain, and I'm, I'm a, I'm a um, wannabe neuroscientist, right? My son, sorry, my son wants to be a neuroscientist. He We went to Huberman's lab back in 2018. We went to San Fran and, and you know, so my son and Huberman just bonded, and they, they text back and forth all the time. And so he just wants to do that stuff, right? So, as my son or Huberman will say, there's many parts of the brain. The two primary parts of the brain are the limbic and the, the limbic brain and the frontal lobe, known as the lizard brain or the modern brain. Right, the limbic brain is the one that's formed first. Right, that's the that's the first part of our brain that that becomes fully formed. It, it it handles all of our emotions and feelings and things like that. It's our it's our lizard brain, right? And and so this is why, as kids and as teenagers, we're emotional beings, right? Because our frontal lobe is designed to handle logical thought, language, decision-making, okay? So logic, language, decision-making comes through our frontal lobe, uh, kind of our conscious thinking mind, right? As we grow, the limbic brain forms first, so it's all out there, okay? And we're getting these emotions really necessary for our bonding experience with other human beings. We have to have that, right? That's one of the reasons why it forms first. Uh, but the frontal lobe is still growing. And so this is why when a teenager, for example, is such an emotional being, right? Because their limbic brain is fully formed, their frontal lobe, their logical brain is not fully formed. And, and what the frontal lobe does is it, it, it creates what call, what's called top-down control. As an emotion comes through your limbic, your frontal lobe can kind of grab that and control it to a extent. Some people are less able to do that than others, but that's called top-down control. Our frontal lobe does all of that, right? Our frontal lobe is also what generates the labels and the things like that in terms of it it, it helps it helps define our experience, right? And so our frontal lobe is like a sponge as we're growing up. I mean, from birth to 25, we're like sponges. We are just absorbing everything and it's just it's and, and the and the neural networks that are being forged are becoming super highways really rapidly, right? They're myelinating and becoming super highways, which is why we all have such formative memories from our youth okay that the music we grew up with in high school is likely some of our favorite music the experiences we had it's always why a lot of us especially at our age we look back and like well it just wasn't as good it's not as good today as it was back then it's because we we were formed our brains were formed these neural networks were formed in this environment this experience right it really is such a forging forging time frame it's why schooling is so important it's why language comes faster to younger people when they uh, when they learn it's why um, ideology can be so formative; it can forge itself so solidly in someone's system when it's when they're brought up in that in that type of uh, environment. Even abuse can as well. The idea is, while our frontal lobes are forming, what I'm interested in doing, to the extent I can, is to, especially with my boys, but it, with any with any kids, is to form a habit of just constantly asking oneself to look inward, right? Because that's the best you can do, all right? Instead of saying, "I am." not adaptable, or I am high on this, instead of doing that, just let's, let's say, what am I, you know, how am I experiencing this? What am I learning, right? Ask better questions during this formative process. So you, you, you expand the the ability to kind of get a, a a robust neural network, and you're not you're not putting these labels on 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 yourself that soon, right? We're all going to have it. We're all going to have labels. It's just part of the growing process. We're all going to come up with our identities that we form as our frontal lobe forms. Uh, but in terms of this labeling, these personality tests, these ad- these attributes tests, I would say just let's let's introspect versus decide, <laughs> and then and then of course then you create a habit when your you know, your frontal phob is is f- fully formed, and you may in fact have some stuff kind of now hammered in instead of uh, being trapped in that you've you've now created this ability to look inward and uh, and decide and grow and interrogate and and learn
1: I think that's not only great information I mean if you're an employer and you have any employees and their the frontal lobe is formed, this is good advice you know from a coaching perspective it's so th- yeah thanks for sharing that it's it's interesting i'm I'm curious one of the things that have been kind of with me a little bit here through this interview and conversation is where are you at now? Like in term, you know, you go through this transition seal, you write a book, which is I've heard like one of the greatest experiences one can go through and one of the most miserable experiences uh, that one could go through. And and that's why I've, I've never, it's really not on my list to ever write a book, but then, and then you're now you're, 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 tra- you're starting your own business here and you're kind of driving things. Where is, how how are you doing with all that, with all the transition, you know, a couple teenage boys, what are some of the things you're doing? I'm interested in just hearing from your perspective, you know, where the, uh, where the struggles have been, the uncertainty, the, the, you know, growing the business, launching it, because we have a lot of listeners that are in that world. And uh, so I'd be curious just to get your understanding.
0: I think what I've learned about myself uh, through through this fifty year process up till now, part of what I love is this is the challenge, is a struggle. I I actually, and I think a lot of my compadres, I'm, I I try to have coffee or lunch with some of the guys I served with who are live in the area at least once a week if I can, just because it's it's cathartic to stay connected. We can talk about things in ways we could never talk about when we were actually in the teams. And and but one of the things we do talk about is this idea that those of us who did this profession are really dialed into creating uncertainty and struggle and challenge and that's our that's our metric for growing right we 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 actually like it. so we call it post traumatic growth right and so for us the the stress is is not is not a disorder it's a um I say this with full recognition that post traumatic stress disorder is real and some people have it, right uh, but i'm just saying that what we talk about is like we we find those ways to step outside of our comfort zone frequently and so for me Getting out of the Navy, I mean, I, I kind of related to, I got to the top of a very elite mountain, right? And then deliberately threw myself off of it into the into the valley of mud and and blood and guts so that I could find a new mountain and climb up a new mountain. And that's exactly where I wanna be. You know, I feel like we're climbing a new mountain. My wife and I get to do it together. We're climbing a new mountain of authorship, entrepreneurship, building a business, you know, executing some new goals, new identity. Uh, And so then in in that vein, we are, I'm very happy because it's, you know, I have my own fate in my own hands. I'm challenging myself. I feel like I'm on a climb, which I think keeps me young. And I think that's, that's phenomenal. Uh, Parenting is a whole different thing. (laughs) You know, parenting is a, I don't, you know, parenting is not even a mountain. I think it's just a, It's just a treadmill, (laughs) you know, um, and the good thing is it's it's sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. You're always it's always beneficial. My wife and I decided to uh, enjoy our kids at every single age. So, you know, I remember when they were little kids, little babies and I'd hold them in my arms and I can just I can still feel them. I love that phase. But I also love talking to my kids at the age they are now, and just hearing what they think as adults and joking around and seeing their sense of humor and stuff like that. So I think that's, but that is always the curve that, you know, parenting is always ups and downs, you know, it just is, you know, um, because that anything we do, I mean, marriage is the same thing, right? Anybody, we, anybody in our lives we love, just, you know, stand by, it's a sine wave. And I think you just have to accept it. And you, have to, you have to enjoy uh, and learn and grow. And so so those different phases, I think for me, I feel, I feel pretty good. I've made a deliberate effort to, like I said, reach out to more of the guys I served with. Because I think for me, part of the honoring the identity piece is the catharsis of being able to talk and hang with folks. right after this, the reasons why I had a hard stop is I'm going to have lunch with one of the guys I served with. today. And so when you, go, when you get to go and, and talk about things and have conversations at levels you never got to in these very high intensity environments it's not in the team's best interest or anybody's best interest to open up fully. <laughs> you know, you, you just have to do what you have to do. Um, but to be able to to interact with these guys now at completely different levels is just amazing uh, for me. And so, so that's a that's something I've been very deliberate about since getting out. And and Kristen has been very supportive of it because she's like, you know, you, it's something yeah, I can see you come back from these like Harry, like Hank, who's, whose name is Harry, but Hank. Um, I'll have lunch with tomorrow. Or coffee with. I mean, we try to see each other at least once a month if we can. And we just, we're buzzing afterwards. We just are. I mean, because we're just, we, because we love each other. We're just, we're just, we'll be best friends for life because of what we experience together. And so, and so I think you just have to look at these zones um, in your life and just make sure are you, are you affecting each zone? And there are some zones I'm doing really good in, some zones I really need to do some work in, (laughs) but that's part of the process as well.
1: What would be the zones that I've got a few questions that you just popped out of there, but what's, what are the zones that you think you need to work on?
0: Well, I certainly need to do better by health and fitness um with all the travel I've not cracked the code on getting a healthy routine that that's that suits my my standard and 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 wants and 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 I think promotes my ability to kind of do everything I want to do so that's that's one thing health and fitness is one one of the benefits of working with your spouse. A business is you really get to create and grow something together. Uh, the non-benefits is you're always talking about business. <laughs> you know, so, so Kristen and I have, <laughs> have really said to ourselves, okay, we need to make sure that we're also working on and honoring each other as, as a relationship, putting the business aside. But even marriage, as you know, that's a constant, constant fire that needs to be tended to and, and stoked and, and, um, and cared for and curated. So, so I think those are a couple. Um, I always want to make sure I'm doing well by my kids, doing well by my family. So I'm always looking at that. Those are the ones that, you know, I'll, I'll be focused on a little bit more heavily on two, on 2024.
1: So <laughs> yeah, nice. When you talk about the marriage, it, you know, when you're in business together, which Tanil and I are as well, like every day, we're every single day, seven days a week, all of our businesses run 24, seven, seven days a week. And so there's, you know, we could get consumed by it. And so you're right. You gotta be super careful. I love what you said earlier about deciding, like deciding to enjoy every stage of parenting. I think that's so huge. Shit's always going to go wrong. It's where you, you meet that point, you know, and whether it's in, in your relationship, whether it's with your kids, whether it's in business, you've got to decide it's such a huge piece. And I'm glad you shared that. You got to decide to just be committed to it, enjoy the process. The ups and the downs, they're both there for you.
0: And I would say this, accept the evolution. And I know you'll agree with this. It drives me bananas, for example, when I, when I um, hear people who are, are like a, a husband and wife who are getting divorced, and, and and that's okay, obviously, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but what drives me bananas is when someone says, well, they're not the same person I married, and I'm like, no shit, <laughs> you know, I mean, are. <laughs> if you think you're going to be the same person, I mean, you and I, we haven't seen each other in, in 13 years, I am sure you and Tennille are different people, to some extent, than they were 10 years ago, just like Kristen and I, and so in a marriage... To not accept this evolution together, like we are different people than than we were when we met twenty three years ago, and but we've evolved together and we've grown together and we've loved each other through those evolutions, and I think that's an acceptance as well. Same with kids, you know, they're going to be different. So, so this acceptance that things change, I, I, it is a undeniable fact that everything. And I, I think I can say this definitively, everything that we know of in the known universe changes over time, right? So why would our relationships be any different? <laughs> you know, we, we change as human beings. And so we have to accept that, uh, as part of the, as part of the celebration.
1: Dude, it's very, very well said, like very well said. And I did have another question and I'm going to probably suck up every last moment I can with you. But I did have one other question because you mentioned, you know, the entrepreneurial journey there just just earlier and I'm curious what kind of relationships can you draw between, you know, being in the seals and starting your own business, you know, that entrepreneurial journey. I'm curious what would be the, you know, kind of bigger distinctions and commonalities in the two of those processes.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I think the SEAL team experience can actually relate to both business experience. There's the entrepreneur, there's the entrepreneurial experience, and then there's the running a business experience, right? And we all know the entrepreneurial phase of a business lasts for only a certain amount of time. And then there's a, there's a tipping point where if you want the business to survive, you have to transition that business into a long-term business, right? It has to be, and and a lot of times that that involves leadership change because that entrepreneur that who's who's formed it is not the right person to take it the next 10 years, right? So, so I think in the SEAL teams, um, I think, I think going to combat was very much like the entrepreneur thing. It's like, you're just, you're out there, you're putting out fires, you're dealing with stuff, you're completing missions. You're like, it was a stint, right? Whatever deployment thing was like, boom, 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 boom. Whereas being back in garrison and I I would even say non-war time, which I experienced at least five years of, uh, but running a command, for example, is that, okay, what do you, it's that long-term vision. Okay, what what am I looking at in this command and what do I want to see long-term and how can I kind of promote this thing to grow and be what it can be over the next long uh, uh, 10, 20, 10, 15, 20 years. And so So I think uh, in the teams, you can get both that very rapid fire. Hey, we just get, you know, and they, and honestly, both of those environments take different sets of attributes. The, the the list of attributes on an entrepreneurial team is going to look different than the list of attributes on a take this business to 10, 20, 50 year team, right? And so you have to be careful of that. And I think business people who are in the entrepreneurial phase need to recognize that, hey, we have to be a certain way now and when we decide to go the distance with thing, let's relook at ourselves and see if we're the right A if we're the right people to be to be in charge of it. If we are, we might have to shift some attributes here and there, but B most likely is who do we bring in with the right attribute list to take this the long haul, right? Because, because that matters as well.
1: Yeah. And I find too, sometimes just the people working inside a startup there, when that business starts to shift, they don't work well when you, when you go into the phase of, you know, strategy systems, processes, sustainability. (laughs) that's right not to and they shouldn't right they shouldn't it's like you know we we started a business and we had a you know minority partner and i always said to him like listen the team you have today is not going to be the team you're going to have in five years i can pretty much guarantee that
0: you see it in the the teams i mean we we went through uh almost well i would say it was 20 years of war but really it was it was probably about a 10 year stint of like combat like 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 the seals were going out and doing stuff overseas like combat stuff And uh, you got guys who were joining right at the tail end of that. And they were coming into the teams with this expectation of this startup environment. And they were getting the teams and realized, oh, we're not doing that anymore. It's now, it's actually this, it's this training. It's we've gone back to this training environment. So, so that expectation matters as well. And someone coming into an environment needs to understand what environment they're coming into. Cause if they're expecting this startup environment and they come into this environment, that's no, no, this is a long-term environment. They're gonna be disappointed. They're not gonna be fulfilled um, and vice versa. If someone's coming in expecting a long-term and they come in, this, oh, we're putting fires out every day. They're not gonna be happy as well. So, so it takes a, it takes some visibility, it takes some, some, um, some knowledge on, on what you're doing.
1: Very well said. Listen, I can't thank you enough for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, your service. You know, thank you for your service. Um, The things that you guys did over there made a big difference, you know, at a level that most people will never, ever know. So thank you. Thank you to you, to all the guys for the service, everybody in the military. And it's, you know, obviously we're from Canada, but US Canada just kind of seems like you know brother sister little nephew or whatever you want to call it. Uh so that's that's number 1. Number 2, but you know the book. I mean again, talk about talk about contribution, man. Like you have you have fucking made a huge contribution not an, of yourself selflessly like leaving family, going overseas, you know, nobody will ever know what you guys did. But then the book you know, going through the process of writing a book, the time and the energy, my mentor always said, you know, you can do anything, but you can't, you can't have everything. And so you have to make choice and, and, you know, what are you prepared to give up to get what you want? And, you know, you, you wrote this book. I think it's amazing. I think it can really help people, whether it's in their personal life, their relationships or their business. And so thanks for the selfless act of, of writing that because, most people, oh, you made you wrote a book and you know you're probably a millionaire. And
0: no, that's not the case.
1: <laughs> that's not the case, especially yeah. on the first book. You gotta write like, five All of right. the goddamn things. Uh but, but I mean, God knows you, know, living off that huge uh, military oh pension you have. No, is, no, no, oh uh, I'm, I'm getting my yacht <laughs> tomorrow.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right.
1: If you're watching, uh please get this book because it will help you, not because Rich is a friend thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks for sharing your, your wealth of knowledge. Thanks for being a friend. Tennille told me like, you got to get rich and Kristen and the boys up here next summer. We'd love to have you up at the house. Uh, It's a pretty fun spot. So I think you'd love it. And the boys would love it. And so. I'm sure we'll chat. I'd love if you can send me a link. We'll connect on that, and 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 I'd love to try that assessment. And- well,
0: here's the thing: we will not let uh, 13 years go by. We're gonna, we're not gonna, we're, we're gonna, let, we're, we are going we are we are going to we will not even let a few months go by. I'm gonna, I'm gonna text you and get the get you on the assessment. I'd like to zoom with you. We'll talk about your results, but let's make sure we stay connected. I very much appreciate uh, you. I appreciate our friendship, and I'm just super thrilled that we're connected again. So, so thanks for having me on the podcast. But this is also a real, real treat for me to catch up. So.
1: Like I said to you before the podcast, like this is one of the special treats that I've gotten by starting a podcast is like reconnecting. And no, this will not go past a couple of months. And then uh, we're going to air this in the new year. I think this is awesome because it's going to be a kickstart to people working into the new year and and making their change and stuff. And this book, guys, will will help you do it. So uh, God bless you, brother. Thank you you so much. Really can't can't thank you enough for being on the podcast.
0: Well, thank you having me. Big hugs to Neil and 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 crew. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll be talking soon. So thank you.
1: Same to Kristen and the boys. Thanks for listening. I appreciate you being with us. If you found value in the show and know a friend or a coworker who could benefit from the conversation, please share the link via text or on social media. Remember, each share creates a ripple effect of knowledge and inspiration. We'll see you next week.
0: The views, information, or opinions expressed by guests during the Business of Doing Business podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Dwayne Kerrigan and his affiliates. Dwayne Kerrigan, or the Business of Doing Business podcast is not responsible for and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series. The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. Listeners are advised to consult with a qualified professional or specialist before making any decisions based on the content of this podcast.